Well, I want to invite you, friends, to open up your um, Bibles to Mark chapter 12. If you have a, a Bible in front of you, the text that we'll be reading from is below the video, so you're welcome to scroll down and have a read of that, but I want to encourage you to read along. We're going to read from um, a brief uh, uh, narrative of an encounter that Jesus had. Remember, he seems to be having multiple encounters in this week in which he is um, readying his own heart to go to the cross. And uh, it seems that very few people around him, except Jesus alone, knows what his destiny is. He is, he has set his face at Jerusalem, and in this final week before his death, when he'll be arrested and put on trial and crucified in the most indignified way, um, as he's awaiting these moments, he's having these conversations throughout the week with different people, and particularly the religious authorities. And so we find him again in conversation, this time with a scribe. And the scribes, of course, are those who had the responsibility of transmitting the scriptures, of of writing them out by hand and copying with such careful precision. So they were devoted to the word of God. And it seems that this particular man, this scribe, has an admiration for Jesus. And he's witnessed how, in this previous conversation we looked at last week, how Jesus really demolishes the Sadducees, who are really the kind of religiously liberal crowd, who are really interested in politics. We know that they were not so devout, because when the Jews revolted in AD 66, one of the first things they did was slaughter the Sadducees. They were not seen as as men who were godly models of, of true devotion. They were seen as in league with Rome. And so Jesus has dealt with the Sadducees. Um, and we, we looked at that last week. And this man seems to have this admiration for Jesus. So he approaches him and asks him this vital, vital question. And the conversation is so illuminating and actually is one of the most important moments in the Bible um, because of the way it shaped the Christian destiny. So let me read to you from chapter 12 and uh, we're going to pick it up from verse 28. It says, one of the scribes came up and heard, him, heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, he answered the Sadducees well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, it's actually very difficult to overstate uh, the importance of this particular command as it stands in the teaching of Jesus and in the formation of Christianity. And I want you to think for a moment, if you could have the opportunity to take five minutes to go back in time and to be around Jesus in his preaching ministry and to have the opportunity to put a question to him. There are many questions that burn in our minds, many which um, come to the surface from time to time depending on life circumstances and seasons and which torment us or frustrate us and which we had clearer answers to. But it's very difficult to think of a question which is more important than this one, which essentially is, what is how can we summarize and simplify God's desire for the way that we should live? And it seems to me that every person who wants to serve God, who would consider themselves a devout person, who wants to, to be a true and authentic believer, should concern themselves with this question as an absolute priority. This is God's will summarized, and we're often wrestling with God's will in the very specific sense. What does God want me to do with my life? And that's not an irrelevant question, but the most important question is, is, well, how do we understand God's will for us in this very general sense? And I want want you to see the importance of this. And we can measure Christ's answer by the impact that it had upon Christianity initially, when it was just beginning and just burgeoning as a a very small but then rapidly growing movement. 
the instruction to love God and to love one another was laid in there right at the foundations of the Christian faith and of the church and is there in the New Testament among the earliest writings as a very prominent and um, perfect articulation of what it means to live the Christian life. And therefore, as Christianity spread and began to uh, influence uh, empires in the coming centuries and eventually would influence the entire world and is continuing to do so, the way in which Christianity was formed would become all important. And what Jesus articulates here becomes the defining uh, characteristic, I believe, of, of the Christian faith and of the way that the church ought to live if it hasn't always managed to live up to this standard. Now, I, I admit that we take this for granted. It's difficult to <clears throat> imagine Christianity without, Christianity without this central call to love and it just shows you that the degree to which we take this for granted is the degree to which this has already shaped our world. It's just the air we breathe, it's the water we swim in. We think this way. Now one of the reasons why we should admire this is because of its perfect simplicity. When Christ is asked to summarize uh, the, the law and to summarize the will of God, what he's being asked is to whittle down uh, or, or boil down the, the, the over 600 commands that are given in the Old Testament law down to a statement, which is no easy task. And so one of the reasons why we admire it is because of the absolute simplicity of what he articulates here. Um, before I planted uh, this church with a few of our friends, um, I worked at another church that, in central London that had an enormous building. Uh, that could seat uh, between one and 2,000 people. And that building had many uh, rooms throughout the structure dotted all over the place. And each of these rooms had a unique lock. And the caretaker would regularly walk around. He'd march around throughout the building take, doing his business. But he'd have a massive bunch of keys with a key ring that was sort of the size of a tennis ball or larger. And it was full of keys. But one of the things that uh, you should know about this keyring was that there were just one or two keys on there that were master keys that could actually unlock most of the doors in the building. It begged the question why he carried them all with him, but there were these, these powerful keys that could open multiple doors. And it seems to me that when Jesus is, is asked um, to summarize the will of God, what he does is he gives us a master key. And uh, this is something we... We, 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 we all crave because life is so complex. Life is very, very difficult to navigate. And one of the things we need is, is a way of, a simple way that we can navigate life. And we, we crave this. You can look at the bestsellers on the market at the moment. When we, they, they articulate um, simple answers to the things we most desire. So if we desire happiness, it's not hard to find books entitled The Key to Happiness. Or if you, if you most desire to be productive and you see that the way in which you can justify your existence is through productivity and feeling like you're doing something meaningful with your life. It's not hard to find many people offering us answers to productivity or to how to learn faster and better and more efficiently or any number of things that we are interested in. Now, for the most part, these answers are sold to us by hucksters who are more um, interested in sales than they are in truth, and therefore they're not necessarily that useful. But this particular conversation is one of those rare moments in history when something that is unbelievably complicated, like how do you live the Christian life, is boiled down to a master key, summarized for us in a simple way which we can immediately understand and grasp and walk away with and memorize in a matter of seconds. And it seems to me that that is incredibly important. So what we're going to do is seek to pull apart this command in terms of understanding it from different facets in order to better grasp the impact on it with the purpose that we look at our own lives and ask ourselves the question, am I really living up to uh, what Christ articulates here? Am I walking God's way? Because I do not want to take it for granted or assume that simply because we know the, the words on this page that we're necessarily doing it or carrying it out. Now, the first thing I want to show you about this command is that, um, and all of these, this is, is a way of articulating true devotion, true devotion to God. And the first thing I want to show you is that this true devotion can be described as affectionate. 
And I'm using that word affectionate in the old-fashioned sense. Jonathan Edwards, back in the, in the middle of the 1700s, wrote a, a, a very important book called The Religious Affections. And he was really, what he was doing, using that slightly archaic term, was examining what is true religious um, feeling and love. So this word affection is a word that we use usually of, you know, how you feel towards your children or your cat or, or, or some of the people in your life. But it really has this, this weighty idea that it, it speaks of your emotional life and of, your, of what you love, what, the love that guides you in your day-to-day life. And so Jesus says... The most important command is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The emphasis really falls on that word love, doesn't it? You shall love the Lord your God. It puts love right at the center. And this is a thing that we need to grasp right at the outset, what is so important, but also so absolutely unique about Christ, what he taught, what he modeled, what he built into our faith. Because at the center of every faith and worldview, there is usually some guiding principle, a central idea, which shapes then the character of the entire religion or worldview or philosophy. Let me just give you a few examples. You can take, for example, Islam, that great religion which emerged a number of centuries after Christianity and uh, began to uh, conquer through the Middle East and through Northern Africa and, and bears an enormous influence upon the world today. What is a central notion at the heart of Islam? And arguably it's the concept of submission. And uh, you can see how when a person puts submission at the center of their life, it leads to certain characteristics and qualities that emerge from that. And it explains the way Muslims uh, practice uh, devotion toward God and the way that they practice um, their faith. And of course, submission belongs within Christianity. Christ called for an absolute denial of self in order to take up your cross and follow him. But submission isn't really the word which captures Christian devotion in the way that it does within Islam. So it's not a sufficient word to, to, to really capture what we're talking about when we're describing Christianity. Or let me use an, another example, um, another great religion, Buddhism, which arose millennia ago in the Far East. Um, Buddhism puts at its center uh, the notion of detachment and the idea that you can learn to um, pass through the experiences of life, the good and the bad, with a measure of detachment, which ultimately, if you perfect this, this um, way of practicing detachment, ultimately you arrive in a kind of state of bliss. And uh, certainly it's, it's an interesting idea, and there are sort of equivalents to this within Christianity, but there's nothing quite like it at the center of the Christian faith. And similarly, we can think about worldviews and, and uh, philosophies and ideologies. It seems to me that the West is right now uh, guided at the center by various concepts. One is consumption. And which is why every election is fought on the basis of whether the economy is going to improve or get worse and whether we're going to be richer or poorer as a result of this, these policies. It seems to me at the centre of Western thinking and ethics these days is, is authenticity and self-expression. It's the guiding principle which explains why um, we have these, these great battles between this person saying, I want to express myself in this way. This is me being my authentic self. And this person saying, I don't agree with that. And so we have these massive blow-ups, authenticity or equality. These ideas lie at the center. But Christianity is unique in this, that it puts right at the center, right at the heart, this notion of affection, of love, of love primarily toward God as the first and the greatest thing. And so we need to understand what what then is Jesus calling for if it puts love at the center. When Jesus cites quotes this line, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. It's a direct quotation from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the early verses of that chapter. And just previous to this, Moses has uh, re-articulated and restated the Ten Commandments, those great statements about what godly living is. And the Ten Commandments broadly, if you, if you knock it with a hammer, it'll fall into two pieces. You have the early commandments, the first four, which are considered the first table of the law, which are all about loving God. And then the second table of the law, which are really about our conduct towards fellow man. 
And those first four commandments, which have to do with not um, putting any other gods before him, not forming any images and worshipping images, not taking God's name in vain, and also uh, not uh, profaning the Sabbath day, the day of worship, the day of dedication to God. Those first four commands, so vital within biblical um, religion, they're all stated there in the Ten Commandments, and they're all stated in the negative form. And it seems to me that when Moses then transitions after having given the Ten Commandments and then transitions to a kind of summary, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Shema, which is recited every day by a devout Jew. And then he says, You shall love the Lord your God. What is really being expressed here is a positive way of summarizing what has been said negatively in the Ten Commandments. Because what we recognize is that Religion is incomplete when it's only understood in the negative way. And let me use an analogy here for you. If you think about a marriage, a marriage can be defined negatively. You can say uh, what the couple do not do that sort of defines their marriage. They do not leave one another. They do not abandon one another. They do not separate from one another. They do not commit adultery with other people outside of the marriage bond. And these are ways that you can define and articulate marriage negatively, but it seems to me that if you've described marriage in these negative terms, you haven't gone the whole way to articulating what marriage is. A marriage can be characterized by these negative things. A couple can live together and not separate. They can not commit adultery, but at the heart of the marriage, it may well lack the all-important thing, the, the, the thing without which it is not a marriage, which is love. And it seems to me that when Jesus is saying here and he's summarizing the law and he's saying, listen, all these negative commands, these do not do this, these do not do that, all of it can be articulated positively in this way. You shall, positively, you shall love the Lord your God. What he's doing is he's setting for us a vision of the Christian life which is not just about the cutting away, but is a positive articulation of what we're meant to pursue. And I want you to think about your own faith for a second. Many people think about their, their faith in negative terms. They think about a concept like purity. God wants me to be pure. But purity is primarily a negative concept. It's about not being defiled. It's about not engaging in behavior, which sullies your heart and your mind and your imagination and your body. It's a cutting away. And uh, in fact, that's the essence of the word holy, means to cut away. And it's very important for the Christian life, but it's not the whole picture. Perhaps one of the most um, vivid examples of this was a man in the middle of the 400s AD called Simon of Stylites, who got his name because he stood upon a great stone, naturally occurring stone pillar, and slept and lived upon this thing for 37 years. Now, this was his expression of devotion to God. He was a Syriac ascetic monk. And ascetic, asceticism is the cutting away of pleasures from your life. He, he lived the most simple life possible. And people used to, to, to arrange for him to get food and supplies on the top of this pillar. And he had a little, uh, he was famous actually. He had uh, a retinue of pilgrims and their um, and the like who would travel to go and see him on this pillar. He was seeking to keep his life pure, but arguably his, he was also useless. Useless in his, uh, in his expression of, of uh, living his Christian life. And it seems to me that if we only think of our lives and our devotion to God in these negative senses, and we think of purity, or we think of another example is obedience, which is defined as not sinning, then ultimately what we're left with is something deeply inadequate. Because when Jesus calls us here and he says, you shall love the Lord your God, he's really summoning a form of obedience which cannot be anything less than absolute, passionate, devoted, zealous affection for the living God. And therefore, if all we've managed to do is sort of keep ourselves from sinning, keep ourselves pure, we haven't actually attained anything like what Jesus articulates as the central call of obedience in the Christian life, to love God. And this isn't something new that Jesus introduces here. This isn't 
a, a new idea. This is actually layered in throughout the commands and throughout the narratives and the stories and the prophecies of the Old Testament. I'll give you an example. In Hosea chapter 6, that great prophetic book when God's lament is, you have committed adultery against me. I was covenantally married to you, my people, and you've, you've committed adultery. One of the ways in which um, this is expressed as Israel is sort of stirring, there's a prayer, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. There's a kind of revival of desire to, um, to actually be covenantally bound and married to God again. And then God laments. He says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. If you've ever had the, the joy, the questionable joy of camping in the wild, you'll know that when you wake up early in the morning, there's dew all over the place on the grass, grass and the cloud might, might, might cause the day to look grey. But very soon on a beautiful day, the clouds will disperse and the dew vanishes just as quickly and then you experience the beating heat of the sun on your tent and the misery that follows. And it seems to me that what God is describing here is he's saying, look, the nature of your faith is that your love is so, so fleeting. Your love is like, it's there for a moment and then it's gone. It's like the clouds. They were there covering the sun for a second and now all we feel is the beating heat and the misery and the dryness. It was there like dew on the grass and then it's gone. And then he says a bit further on in that chapter in Hosea 6, he says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's saying all you've managed to do is engage in all these empty ways of practicing religion. Your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, it's all there. I can't question that. I, I, you know, I granted you're doing well. It's not enough. I want your steadfast love. I want you to seek me, to know me, to have my heart. And this is what Jesus is seeking to capture in this statement. It seems that this is also one of the exemplified for us in the best examples of the Bible of devotion. You think about David. What is it that David is praised for by God? And the answer is there, given to us in the Bible, that God says of him, I have found in David a man after my own heart who will do all my will. In other words, all of his obedience, all of the godliness which characterized David's life for the majority of the time, not, not all the time, but in most seasons of his life, all of that flowed from the fact that he pursued God's heart. He loved God with everything he is. And this certainly comes through in the psalm, which I read from at the start. My soul, he says, will be satisfied as with rich, fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. Here this man is, hungry, with an empty belly, wandering through the wilderness. And all he can think of is how satisfied he is in God's presence. True devotion, friends, is affectionate. And I want to ask you, is your Christian life characterized by Love Is it characterized by affection? Is it characterized by a cherishing and a desiring of God? Because if not, then it seems to me that we have fallen far short of what it is, the privilege of what it is to know God, what it means, what it truly means to be a Christian, and what it means to please Him with our lives and with our hearts and everything that we are. So the first thing He shows us is that true devotion is affectionate. Let me show you a second thing that comes out from this answer that Jesus gives. He shows us that true devotion is all-consuming. And this is very clear. If I just reread to you the way that Christ articulates it in citing Moses here, it says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The characteristic, what God wants from us is love, but where does he want it from? He wants it from every part of your life. Now, it seems to me that this has to be stressed for the reason that one of the greatest causes of misery in our lives is our tendency towards 
uh, being double-minded, our tendency towards having split desires and split motivations and being vacillating between different things and different options in life. And this is not just true in faith, it's true in everything. But one example of this that's been very vivid and obvious to me over the years as a pastor has been the many conversations I've had with young men who are engaged in a serious relationship with a young woman, interested in marrying her, but uncertain, not sure, double-minded about the whole situation. They like her, they maybe even love her, but at the same time, they're, they're, they're afflicted by doubt, they're afflicted by anxiety, by the uncertainty, and really at the back of that is it's a product of our culture, of our consumeristic age in which we have a million options. And even more, if you go into internet dating and all that does is it creates this anxiety, it creates this uncertainty, this double-mindedness. And it seems to me that that is a cause of much misery in relationships. And the guy doesn't experience anything like contentment or peace or happiness until he, he literally cuts away his options and says, I choose her. And then he finds she's enough, and he loves her. And it seems to me that this is true also in faith, that one of the the problems that we're afflicted by in our desire to live a godly life is the the problem of this double-mindedness, of of divided affections, of divided desires. Now, this is very obviously true when you think about the temptations which afflict you on a regular basis, and which sometimes you give in to and the things which you are most battling at this present moment. And Paul seems to capture this challenge, this problem, in Romans 7, when he says that I find it to be a law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members or in my body another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's describing a divided mind and the way it causes this misery because it causes this internal conflict and friction and frustration inside you. I want to do God's will, but I'm also drawn aside. And there's these other things that appeal to me. And this is the reason so many of us experience frustration on a day-to-day basis and how that frustration builds up into moroseness and the spiritual weariness and the experience of wilderness and so many of the negative things which afflict us within the Christian life. This double-mindedness. And this isn't always as obvious as wrestling with a clear moment of temptation to sin. This also seems to me to be a very subtle thing because we are complex people. And sometimes we can't even discern our own hearts. We don't really know what we want. We're aware that we have an overriding desire in life to live for God. But it seems to me that we fail to fully give ourselves to him. Why? Because somewhere lurking in our lives, in our desires, in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies, there are these competing desires, which we maybe haven't even identified because of the subtlety of the way this works and the way idolatry functions within our lives. Years ago, um, before we ha- had the mommy wagon, which I drive right now, we had a, a Skoda, or a Skoda as it's supposed to be pronounced. This was, um, I actually loved this car on the most part. It was powerful, it was fast, it was nippy, it was brilliant. But it had one great problem with it, which was that it always wanted to turn left. And I took it to the garage and asked them to sort this out. You know, when the tires were replaced, they checked the wheel alignment. They said, it's all good. It's fine. Nevertheless, I took it back on the open road, the straight road. And as I'm driving along, if you just just gradually release pressure on the steering wheel, the car, sure enough, wanted to veer to the left, which meant that every time I drove it down a straight road, I was constantly having to apply pressure to the steering wheel to keep it in a straight line. I cannot explain this problem to this day. But it was a cause of frustration to me. I wanted the car to go straight. And it seems to me that this is the experience of the Christian life. That if you want to go straight toward God, you have to apply constant pressure because there's parts of you, parts you don't even understand about yourself that are veering off to one side or to the other through distraction, desire, idolatry, affections that are, that are mixed and that are b- pulled aside to different things in your life. And so... When Jesus says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, what he's talking about here is more than just affection for God, 
but an obsessive, all-consuming love for him, which captures your entire life. Now, this is, let me explain this in a couple of different ways. This is explained partly by the word integrity. The word integrity means that, that you are one, that there's a oneness to your being. So what I see on the outside is true just beneath the surface, and it's also true right at the core of who you are. To have integrity means that you see the same thing all the way through. If a piece of silver, like this ring on my hand, has integrity, it means that it is perfectly pure, and it is silver all the way through. And it seems to me that this is a characteristic of godliness, that we, become, we, we, we attain to having more integrity, and that there are no divisions within us. There are no parts to our life. It's not that you can say 70% of me loves God and then 30% of me wants other things. But that to have integrity is a completeness to your faith. It's a total faith. It's all-consuming. It's put very well in a line within Psalm 86, which um, at one stage in my life I used to pray every day and I ought to return to. But he says in Psalm 86 and verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Or sometimes it's translated, give me an undivided heart. And it seems to me whether you say that positively, unite my heart, or negatively, give me an undivided heart, it's the same thing. But it essentially means this, that your life should not be partitioned. You shouldn't be able to say, well, my mind loves God, but my body loves all these pleasures and indulgences. Or you shouldn't be able to say, well, I'm serving God by dutiful obedience with my body, but my mind is distracted and my heart actually loves other things. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength is this total religion, this total devotion, this all-consuming love for God which pulls every part of your being into a perfect unity. We use the language these days of being centred. And I think it's a very good word to describe what real devotion to God looks like because it means that there is no friction within your, or conflict within your psychology, within your mind, within your heart that pulls you in different directions. Jesus captured this very perfectly when he described a life that's full of light. He said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, what you have to understand here about the language of healthiness is it can literally be translated single. If your eye is single, in other words, if you have an undistracted gaze toward God, beholding him, loving him, then your whole body, he says, will be full of light. And of course, to state that negatively, when your eye is distracted, when it's not single, when you're like a chameleon, you know, they have the ability to move their eyes independently in different places so that one eye can look over there and process that image and another eye is looking down there and processing that image. Humans do not have that capacity. For us to have an unhealthy eye, divided vision, is to, to experience darkness within our lives. It's this, this experience I'm describing of division, of conflict, of internal anxiety and a lack of peace. And this is why in the next line Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's the example he offers up for us. But it applies to every other idol within our lies within our existence. If I can just state this finally in a negative way and a positive way. He means, of course, that no part of your life should be serving other things. You think of your life as a great battleship heading to war, and life is a spiritual warfare with various compartments and levels within the ship and functions that are carried out by different teams and crews. If within a battleship there's a mutiny within any part of that ship, whether it's on the gun deck or whether it's within the engine room or whether it's within the navigation room, if there is a mutiny anywhere, then that ship becomes useless in the battle. And it seems to me that what Jesus is calling for here when he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength is an absolute lack of division within your being so that positively your entire existence is devoted to God. Love him with everything that you are.
Let me show you a third facet here. True devotion is also horizontal as well as vertical. And this is, this is uh, given to us in the next line when he says, The second is, like th- is, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, he does something very surprising here. The scribe has asked Jesus for a summary of God's will. And he says, this, what's the most important command? And Jesus answers it. But then Jesus throws in a second answer. And it seems to me that he does so out of necessity. Now, we lose the strangeness of this because we're so used to the phrasing of love God, love neighbor. That's the Christian life. But actually what Christ has done here when he's added in this second quotation from the law is he's dug out of his memory from deep within the law in Leviticus in the 18th chapter listed within a long set of commands that are, seem somewhat random and arbitrary when you read them. He's found this one line, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, ah, that's it. We naturally pull these two things together, but they were not together within the Old Testament law. And Jesus, in his understanding of the law and his careful reading of it, has found these two statements which perfectly summarize godliness and which go together. And you ask the question, why does he give him a second answer to go with the first? And the answer is simple, that they are inseparable. And I think we can prove that. I think that they're inseparable primarily because the second command, loving your neighbor, is the natural result of obedience to the first command, which is loving God. And it works like this. Think very carefully with me for a second. The Bible shows us in many places all throughout Scripture that the great danger of idolatry is that we become like the things that we worship. And this was true of Israel. When Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, And down at the bottom of the mountain, the people of Israel were melting their jewelry and forming a golden calf so they could worship the golden calf. The way in which God then chastises them is he describes them as a stiff-necked people. In other words, he says, you worship a cow and now you've become like cows with their great, mighty, stiff neck in the sense that you can't tell a cow where to go. And uh, Jesus says, you become like cows, dumb beasts with a stiff neck. And uh, God says that to his people. But it's also true of all the idols that we cherish. You worship sex, you become licentious and a slave to your desires and your passions and your impulses and your urges. You worship money, you become greedy, you lack um, contentment and you're unable to share and you're una- unable to give away and you're unable to lack, you're unable to do away with, the th- be, to, to be done with the things which you have and, and so on. We can talk about any idol in this way and say the thing that you most worship then forms its image upon your existence so that you become just like it. Now that can be stated in that negative way but it's also one of the greatest hopes of the Christian life because If we worship God truly, what will the consequence be? It will be that we become like God, and God is love. Now, this seems to me very evident from Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 3, for example, Paul says that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. So we're gazing at him in worship. He says, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, As you practice love for God, as you worship him, as you're devoted to God, as you gaze at him, you become like him. You become like what you worship. And this is most perfectly shown to us when in our Christian hope. The Christian hope is that in the moments of our lives, we'll worship God and become more like Jesus in the the result. But our ultimate hope is that one day we'll see Jesus face to face. And what will the result be of seeing him face to face? We're told in 1 John 3, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So we're God's children, but we're not fully formed yet. But he says, but we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Beholding Christ, in other words transforms you. And so it seems to me to be the natural result that if a person truly loves God with everything that they are, 
the natural consequence will be that they'll become a loving person toward everyone around them. And the, the two things are utterly inseparable, which then leads us to this conclusion, that loving your neighbor is a proof of your love for God. It's the demonstration, it's the visible demonstration that you do genuinely love God. And this has to be stated because as people who seek to be religiously devout, if that is true of you, the the greatest danger that you will encounter in your spiritual life is self-deception. In other words, that you can trick yourself into believing that you are a devout person, that you really love God, when in fact you don't. We can be self-deceived. This is the thing which Jesus keeps honing in on and criticizing among the religious elite of his day. And one of the ways in which he says that, he describes them in this way. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. He says, when, in other words, this comes within Matthew 23 when he's describing the many ways in which they describe, in which they, are, they live out devotion to God. And he says, they, you know, they, they, they obey him in this way and they tithe their, their garden herbs and they do all these things. And he says, look, what is all of this? He says, they do it all to be seen by others. They've deceived themselves. They think that their devotion to God is genuine. But in actual fact, it's a self-serving devotion. The center of their affection is themselves. And that their religious practice is just the means by which they gain the praise of man. Because you can get praise of man by being religiously devout, just as you can get praise of man by succeeding in other ways. So really, these men don't love God. They love themselves. And their love for themselves is proved by the fact that ultimately all of their obedience is motivated by a desire for the approval of men. And Jesus says that's why it's empty. That's why it has this great hole, this hollowness at the heart of their faith. They are deceived. This is the hypocrisy of religiosity. If you want to know if your faith is real, if you want to know if your devotion to God is authentic, if you really love him, the consequence will be that your eyes aren't obsessed with yourself what do people think of me? Am I impressing people? Is my religious devotion impressive to others? That won't be even be a second thought in your mind. The consequence of a true love for God will be a self-giving love toward others. That everything you do in service in this world is motivated by a love for others. And that that is your worship to God. Because ultimately, loving others is loving God. This is evident from Christ's own life. The way in which he served God through his service to humankind. It was an offering to God of worship in the way he loved us. And it's there in his teaching. To love others is to love God. So this love that he describes is not just vertical. As important as that is, as primary as the vertical relationship is, it is also has to be horizontal. And the Christian who forgets this perhaps is not a Christian at worst or at best, is in need of repentance, is in need of heart change, is in need of a real, genuine gaze at our Saviour. And this brings me to the final point, and just very briefly at the end. When we think about the things I've said, that genuine devotion to God is this affection, it's not good enough that you have dry service, you must love God. And that not only that you love God, but that you love him with all of your being. It's all consuming. And not only that you love him with all of your being, but also that your life is, is always constantly flowing out towards others in a love for neighbor. And that this is godliness. When we think about all that we've said up to now, it lead us to this last conclusion. That true devotion is actually impossible. Now... The reason why we have to state this is because I think when we read a passage like this one, love God, love your neighbor, and we see the beautiful simplicity of what's said there, our danger here is that we confuse simplicity with ease. And they're not the same thing. Augustine summarized what Christ articulated here with even fewer words. Love and do as you like. It's a beautiful summary of God's will. Love and then do whatever you want and whatever you want will be godly because you're loving. Perfect summary. Simple. Love and do as you like. Is it easy? And the answer is emphatically no. And it's impossible, I would say. And the reason why, there's a couple of reasons why this is, this is the case. One is that love is 
unbelievably costly. To love others is to prefer them above yourself, and to love God is to seek His will above your own. That is costly. It means constant self-denial and sacrifice. Love is profoundly difficult. And the other thing that's hard about this is, you know, Augustine was right, love and do as you like, but how do I make myself love in the first place so that doing what I like is the right thing? In other words, how do I change my heart? It's not just the case that love is costly, but also I need a heart transplant. You know, I'm not naturally a lover of God or a lover of my fellow man. I have all kinds of selfish motivations mixed in there in my heart. This is the conflict of, of life I've been describing. Love is impossible. And I think we have to state this because when Christ has this engagement with the scribe and the scribe says, yes, teacher, you're absolutely right. And Jesus then answers him and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, even if you know and agree and believe that all of this is true and you seek to live it out, love God, love your neighbor, that is not enough. You'll still fall short. It seems to me this scribe was a godly man in many ways, an admirable man, one of the few men who are among the religious elite whom Jesus encourages and praises, but it's still not enough. This is why we need to ask ourselves when we look at our own hearts whether this love for God is really as all-consuming and complete and beautiful as we would want it to be. And the answer is never. Never. And friend, the reason why I stress this right at the end is not to leave you in a discouraged, demotivated state in which you walk away from today thinking, well, I've just been told to do and told that it's also impossible, so I'm just not going to bother. It seems to me that this is... This is where we taste and experience the mercy of God. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. And he says, You are my friends. In Romans 5, Paul explains it in this way. He says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So it's not like Jesus looked around and said, who here is perfectly loving God and loving your neighbors? Ah, you're my people. I'm going to die for you. No, no, he looks around and sees us all in abysmal state of failure. Failing to love God, conflicted hearts, and absolutely selfish in our day-to-day lives. He says, I'm going to die for you. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But he says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it seems to me that that is the greatest, most perfect, most encouraging statement of the reality in which we stand as Christians. It is impossible to obey God completely and thoroughly because I can't change my heart and I can't live this life of constant love in an an uninterrupted, perfect way. I cannot do it. But praise God that despite my sin, despite my weakness and despite my ungodliness, all words that Paul uses here in Romans 5, despite all of my failings, Christ died for me. Why? He says it here, because he loves us. And the more that you come to Jesus and his mercy and in his death on the cross, the more that you fall down in confession of your failure, in confession of your inadequacy, in confession of your shortcoming, the more you come down and, 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 and kneel before the cross, the more that the love of God pervades your heart and changes you. I can't change myself, but the love of God can change me. And as I encounter his love in the gospel, that he saved me when I was a sinner and he's not going to abandon me yet. And he'll never let me out of his grip because of his unbreakable love and his perfect love. That love has the capacity to melt my heart and turn it from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that I respond to God with godly affection. So that I can find the power in the Holy Spirit to overcome sin in my mind or in my heart or in my body, you know, in any faculty of my being. So that I can love others because Christ is my model. 
And his image is being emblazoned upon me as I worship him. Friend, I want to encourage you, come back to the blazing center of our faith. Come back to the Christ crucified for you. And yes, we need to change. Yes, he wants us to love. Yes, he wants our lives to become like his. But before all of that, we need mercy. We need his grace. We need his forgiveness. Isn't this precious? I want to pray with you as we close. Pete and Nat are going to come and lead us in a response of worship. I just wish we could take communion together right now. I wish we could eat the bread and drink the wine. It seems to me that one of the greatest tragedies of this lockdown season is that we can't be a church and do the fellowship around the bread and the wine and taste and savor the goodness of God. But Christ is still with you. And he wants to come and minister to your heart the gospel truth that I've been describing to you. If you are not a Christian, friend, you will rightly have understood that the Christian life is impossible. And one of the things that puts people off from becoming a Christian is, well, it's too hard. But hear this. Hear this if you hear nothing else. God changes you. It's not about you entering into a self-improvement project in which you try really hard to be a religiously devout person to love others. It's rather that you come and ask for mercy from Jesus Christ and his love melts your heart. I'm sure you can manage that even if you can't manage love because I can't manage loving others. We can all manage repentance. We can all come and beg for mercy when we realize our weakness, when we realize our failing. So let's pray. Father, we want to come to you and thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ did not give us an easy way out and nor did he live a life that lacked integrity but rather he raised the bar and said this is perfection this is holiness and then he lived it out for us and lord we need to um we need to love you better but lord our hearts are infected with sin and our lives are confused and conflicted and divided father would you come and enable us to love you better would you forgive us of our sin of apathy and a lack of love for you and lord our failure to pray our failure to worship you and the way in which that then infects all of our life with this selfishness and self-centered way of thinking and living lord change us we pray from the ground up rebuild us in the image of the lord jesus christ make us like our savior we pray in jesus precious name amen